innovation doesn't have to be something new and shiny. It doesn't have to be things that only serve a specific audience because more often than not, that's what happens. You'll design a solution with the needs of people in urban areas or the elite, but you forget those who don't have electricity, those who've lost their jobs, those who only have access to um, internet-enabled phones, and forget those who might also not understand this new world that we're living in and all the technological advances. Welcome to Urban Limitroph, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the global African experience by highlighting the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent and occasionally the diaspora to creatively solve problems, support communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic. This episode is sponsored by the University of Toronto School of Cities. The School of Cities convenes urban-focused researchers, educators, students, practitioners, and the general public to explore and address complex urban challenges with the aim of making cities and urban regions more sustainable, prosperous, inclusive, and just. To learn more about their work, visit schoolofcities.utoronto.ca. This episode is also co-sponsored by the University of Toronto's Department of Geography and Planning. To learn more about their work and the different undergraduate and graduate programs available, please visit geography.utoronto.ca. Named Africa's Gift to Silicon Valley by the New York Times, Ushahidi is a platform that should be on your radar. In August 2021, I met with Angela, the executive director of Ushahidi. The Ushahidi platform helps communities turn information into action with an intuitive and accessible crowdsourcing and mapping tool. By enabling the rapid collection, management, and analysis of crowdsourced information, Ushahidi empowers everyone, individuals, community groups, governments, activists, and organizations to create meaningful change. Born out of crisis, the open source software enables virtually anyone with a cell phone or internet connection to efficiently crowdsource information, map it, and share it with those the most in need, and guide those who can provide aid, making it a powerful planning and decision-making tool for communities and cities in the midst of emergency. To learn more about Ushahidi and how it is being mobilized worldwide, let's tune in. Welcome again. And so my first question for you is, what is Ushahidi and what is the work that you do? All right. Ushahidi is a global nonprofit technology company that develops integrated tools and services to enable people to generate solutions um, and mobilize communities for good. So we build open source software with the intent of strengthening communities and improving lives, um, empowering these users to rapidly and purposefully gather, analyze, respond, and act on data and information. Our flagship product, which is actually named after the company, is an open source crowdsourcing tool that enables efficient data collection via SMS, email, Twitter, smartphone applications, and the web. Management that helps you understand what's happening on the ground with the near real-time feed of data, visualization of events as they unfold, and effective response. So ultimately, we empower ordinary people to become active participants in stories being told about their locations and create a bottom-up approach to information sharing. And how did Ushahidi get started? That's a very interesting question. So Ushahidi is a Swahili word that means testimony. Um, And we're a company that was born out of the post-election violence that broke out in Kenya in 
2007-2008. Now, the background there is that there were high tribal tensions marked by the Kenyan elections in 2007. So, of course, when results were announced, they were primarily contested, resulting in the breakout of violence across the country. Now, a lot of what was happening on the ground at the time was primarily underreported or not reported at all. So a group of five Kenyan bloggers who are the Ushahidi founders then came together to help ordinary Kenyans shed light on what was happening around them. So they built this platform where people could send in a text message or fill out a web form and have that information aggregated and visualized on the map. So essentially, they gave Kenyans a voice when no one else could or would. And citizens became empowered to document what was happening in their communities, be that violence, share that information on a global, uh, at, a global um, at the global stage, and where possible, actually feed that data to domestic or international investigators and prosecutors who are working towards accountability for crimes at that time. And so... Yeah, from the initial inception from this one crisis to the various other crises that we've been dealing with over the years. Yeah. How has like Ushahidi evolved, you know, since its initial inception? Ushahidi has evolved since its initial inception over the last 13 years, um, being used for that post-election violence to being used in more than 160 countries more than 200,000 times to advance democracy, report incidences, mobilize crisis response, simplify research, encourage activism, address challenges, influence change, and improve society. So really looking at shifting the status quo and looking at ordinary people as active participants um, in problem solving in their communities. Yeah, I mean, what initially drew me to Shahidi was just, so I have a background, um, uh, I did my minor in university and undergrad in uh, GIS, so Geographic Information Systems, and so I'm always a little bit shocked. We were really focused on like using one type of software throughout my entire kind of undergrad, and then I'm always shocked about all these different like, <laughs> softwares that are available and the way that um, the software that we're using, like ArcGIS, um, like by Esri, it's very expensive, yeah. <laughs> very expensive and, and not that accessible. And it's kind of, it is, um, as a, as much as it's like a foundational kind of like uh, software that you, you need to know, it's kind of not the most intuitive, but what I really love about Ushahidi is that it's something that not only is it like open source, but it's usable by so many different people. And especially, like you said, the inception of it was in, within a crisis. And I feel like that's within a time where like everything is just, you know, everything is, this essentially kind of like chaos but yeah. you're able to you know have created uh like a tool that even with these times of like uncertainty and like I'm sure fear and a number of different things it's something that, that people can rely on and use in a really easy way and so yeah I think yeah. that's really brilliant yeah I, I think when the founders um started the organization like at that point it was really just a matter of scratching our own itch you know most of <laughs> us were stuck in our house not knowing what was happening during that time and so I don't think at that time that they ever saw the growth that we've seen today, because at the end of the day, it was just, we've seen a problem. We need to figure out how to fix it with the skills that we have and just elevate the voices of those who aren't being heard. And didn't realize that that was actually a thing that was the case globally. There were many other instances, be it Russian fires or human rights um, activists really looking for ways of being able to surface a lot of what, what's happening on the ground. So it's just that Kenyan election instance might have just been the spark for other people to see how they could mm -hmm. utilize a tool in similar or different ways, but with the same goal in mind. 
looking at ordinary citizens and figuring out how to include them in decision making and problem solving. Definitely. And so that leads me to my like next question is that can you walk me through the process of using the platform? Absolutely. So typically before we even get as far as you know using the platform, we advise people to start by really thinking critically about the problem that they're trying to solve. So start by asking yourselves or rather asking yourself what problem are you trying to solve? what informational gaps exist who are your stakeholders and audiences like who are the people who are going to either be sharing data or consuming data from whatever instance you want to set up and what are their motivations for participating in the project in the first place because that again will also influence what tactics you use to engage with them right and then the next thing to also think about is what tools do they have access to because you also have to be careful that you're using um, an appropriate technology tool and not something that would be far far to reach or hard to access Next would be thinking about are there existing solutions to the problem um, or are there groups being similar work? You don't want to go trying to reinvent the wheel and sometimes duplication of efforts can actually lead to inefficiencies or loss of life um, in some cases, right? Um, next thing to think about as well is what are the risks associated associated with crowdsourcing data? Things like how do you verify information? And then how do you also plan on mitigating them? And most importantly, what expectations are you creating with whatever project you're setting or you're creating and how will you manage them? Because it's very important to make sure that you're closing out the feedback loop um, or that whatever expectations you've created are met. Now, once you've had, and there's many, many other questions you can probably ask yourself. We, we tend to have a, a small guide um, on our community website or other on, on our website for people to just uh, think about these things. Now, once you've had a handle on how the Ushahidi platform can help you solve these problems, you have two options to deploy. You can either download the software from our website or on GitHub and host it on your own servers. And then the second option would be using our hosted service where you just sign up for an account or an instance using a valid email address on our website and your instance is set up for you within a matter of minutes right now once you're set up then you you'll go through the process of defining and configuring what kind of data you want to collect uh, things like de- uh, designing your service, what questions you're going to ask, and then also configuring your data sources, basically how you're going to collect the data. Is it setting up an SMS number if SMS is going to be the primary way that people are sending in messages? Is it USSD? Is it email? Things like that. And then after that, then you move on to publicizing the awareness about the existence of your platform. And once messages start coming in, then you can go through the process of triaging and figuring out how to forward those over for response. Okay. So yeah, it's um it's good to hear that there's this whole guide. So a lot of the questions that you you mentioned that I think about prior to even getting started, I hadn't really considered in terms of, yeah, all the thought you have to put into before you even creating this and, and finding, like you said, those networks um, that are already doing the work so you're not repeating things. That's very important. Yeah, absolutely. And so who are the typical like users of Ushahidi, like the ones actually creating the maps, uh, creating the deployments versus the people accessing it? Yeah, so Ushahidi is used by individuals, advocacy groups, um, grassroots and development organizations, both both large and small. Um, But the common factors are that it's, you know, people who are on the front lines of promoting social justice in the world. Most recently, especially during the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen 
a lot more instances of advocacy groups and individuals and grassroots organizations deploying the software more because everybody's really just trying to figure out how, how they can help. And Ushahidi tends to be very easy to deploy and has been using many of those instances. So it's made sense, um, especially given the, the context of the fact that you're, it, it's really about making sure that people who ordinarily wouldn't be involved can actually get involved. Yeah, finding the, I guess, unheard voices, people who won't typically be, um, I guess, voicing their opinions or just being engaged in that kind of way. The unusual suspects, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that being said, that focus on making sure that those voices aren't lost, how does Ushahidi make the software accessible to uh, both those collecting the data and then also those viewing the final product, the, the final maps? I think first and foremost, the platform is free and open source. And that's a very deliberate effort to ensure that anyone who's in need can access the tool, regardless of the financial ability. You just flagged the fact that some of the tools that you use for, uh, for your education tend to be very expensive. So you can imagine for people who are, you know, it might be a crisis, it might be a human rights situation, a security incident. And you really need to deploy really quickly or, or need something that you can access quickly. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's a price barrier, then that just that just makes things uh, difficult. And so that has also informed our decision to waive the fee off of our hosted service for an indefinite period. Now, background there is that as much as we're free and open source, somewhere along our journey in 2015, we've also had to think about how to keep the lights on. And so we... We have a software as a service model that we deployed, but then we realized within that journey that the pricing that we had attached to the hosted service might have ended up being more of a barrier to access than we thought. And so since COVID-19 hit, both the downloadable version as well as the, the hosted version of the platform are free for all. So that's one way that we really tried to make sure that the software is accessible, especially to those who are collecting the data. Um, Second, and this probably applies more to those who are viewing the final product as opposed to the ones um, deploying it, we we try to meet meet our audiences where they are. It's, it's why we have such a wide range of options to interact with the Shahidi. I think I mentioned it in my introduction before. We have SMS, we have email, we have Twitter, we have the web platform, we have smartphone applications. And the goal there is just to lower those barriers of access. Whether you are somebody who has an SMS-enabled phone or somebody who has a smartphone, that we're building and designing with the users first and foremost, so that it doesn't matter who you are, what you have access to, that you're still able to interact with Dushahidi and have um, your voice, your voice heard. Third is um, the platform has been translated into over 40 languages, albeit at very uh, varying levels of completion. So this is something that we work closely with our community of users and contributors to try and make sure that language isn't a barrier. I think English is a one that's most widely used when developing software, but then people tend to forget that there's a significant portion of the world's population that doesn't speak English. English isn't their, their, their first language or isn't even available to them. And so that's a key thing that we've also made a deliberate effort to make sure people can access um, or that can, can interact with the tool in the language that they are comfortable with. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, definitely something that we tend to forget, <laughs> especially given the use of the, the platform and like crisis and different like contexts. Yeah, it's definitely important <laughs> to have these different languages accessible. Yeah. 
And so what have been some of the challenges of getting like, the communities to actually like use a platform and, you know, actually take part in this crowdsourcing process? So, of course, on the product side, you know, we, we know that the world and technology is constantly evolving. And so we are constantly in a space of trying to understand what the ecosystem looks like around us um, so that we can adapt to the emerging needs of our users and ensure that our products and services are adequately supporting them. Things like figuring out ways of either automating the management process that you're not spending that much time trying to triage um, and they're able to focus on the actual response side. So those are the things that we have to juggle as the people who are building the software. But I think one, one of the, the, the biggest realizations in our journey is that more often than not, communities need some guidance and support on how to leverage the tool to solve their specific problem. And it's not just in the, you know, this is, move this button here or do this or do that on the tool itself, but really thinking about how you merge the technical and the non-technical bits of your overall strategy, right? So it's, yes, you have the instance and you have your service designed, but what are the things you need to do um, to maximize? Like, I, is, is it... Um, reducing the number of questions that you're asking? Is it the constant engagement? Is it the media campaigns and, and things like that? Is it thinking about uh, partnerships? And that also brings me to the second point, which is also the, the capacity of these communities to keep the projects running for long. What we've seen in our 13 years of existence is that most of the successful projects that we have seen using the Shahidi platform have been human resource intensive. You need volunteers, you need very strong partnerships. And more often than not, developing those partnerships and building that uh, momentum within your volunteer base can take some time and effort to build. And if this was a case of Angie noticing an issue in, in within her estate, yes, I'll be able to set up the platform and I might be able to, you know, whip up whatever I can within my own networks. But being able to sustain that while keeping in mind everything else that I might be going through, I don't have, I might not have access to the right volunteer base. Th those tend to be the bigger challenges. And so we've also been in a space of trying to think about what more can we do beyond just providing the technology and making it accessible to help people think about how to merge those two things, your non-technical bits of your strategy, along with the Ushahidi platform. Yeah, that's good to know in terms of, yeah, I think that's something we forget that I think with any technology, <laughs> on one end, there's the, like you said, actually figuring out how it works, but then also, yeah, how do you, like you mentioned, how do you best leverage the information that you have submitted, the information that's being received on the other end of the app in order to actually make an impact in your life. So that's, that's interesting that there's this whole kind of like ecosystem that needs to go in place in order to um, make sure yeah. that, you know, the map itself is useful, but the extra level of making sure that it's effective. Yeah, because I think one, one thing that even as technologists, we tend to make a mistake on is thinking that technology is going to come in and solve all your problems. It's, it's a significant portion, but it's something that enables the non you know, the, the, the non-technical mm -hmm. side. You need to make sure you have a good understanding of your audience, you have solid partnerships set in place so that when you're, when you're using the technology, then it, it's, it serves as a good foundation or a basis or that, you know, the, the shoulder of the giant that you need to then go out and save the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so can you share some examples of like projects that have been created by uh, Ushahidi that you find uh, particularly like noteworthy or... I don't know, like inspiring or anything like that? 
Wow. There's so many. Like <laughs> try, trying to pick one will be difficult, but I, 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 I'll try and just share a couple of examples across different categories that always really speak um, really strongly to me. Um, I think one of the first ones or the first areas that people know Shahidi for really strongly is on the crisis response side, looking at using first-hand data from affected individuals for humanitarian response. And the very first one that put us on the map was the Haiti earthquake of 2010. Right. And subsequently, after that, we've seen the Nepal earthquake in 2015, where the platform was used to try rather to eliminate assumptions about what was needed. I think when a crisis hits, typically people will think you need blankets, you need rice and you need all of these things. But in that case, I think or rather what ended up coming up to light was the fact that there was a need for essential medicine. And that isn't something that would have been discovered without speaking to those who are directly affected. Um, I think I mentioned earlier before, for COVID-19 as well, over the last year, we've seen a huge surge of use of the platform because of the informational gaps that have existed, people not knowing exactly what's going on around the communities, um, you know, the government having limited capacity to deal with, with the pandemic itself, or even trying to deal with the, the, the effects of, of lockdowns. So we've seen local communities really coming together to either track the overall progression of the disease, most recently trying to shed light on vaccine inequity, um, trying to connect people in need with those who can help them out. One of the strongest examples that I tend to use is one from Spain, um, a project called Frena La Curva, um, which emerged in March of 2020, just as uh, a lockdown was being imposed um, on, on the Spanish provinces. And they set up the platform primarily as a way of trying to map out resources, especially for those who are immunocompromised, um, that eventually evolved into a, a way of connecting volunteers with people who needed help. But the beautiful thing is not just that, that fact, but how they were able to then take our technology and create a model that they were able to replicate in over 23 different countries around the world, in the Hispanic community, Portugal, Costa Rica, many other countries that took that Fernanda Curva model using the Ushahidi map to then do the same thing within the communities. Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful um, validation for us. I mean, we're a team of 10 to well, rather 11 to 15 people, a bunch of us based in Kenya, uh, the rest across different parts of the world. But, you know, a, a small team like this building a tool that was born out of problems you associate with Africa, then getting used in so many countries without us having a direct hand um, in that has always just been amazing. A few other examples would probably be around human rights protection. So from tracking sexual harassment against women in Egypt, to documenting the protests during the Egyptian revolution of 2010, most recently published, publishing news from the Iranian protests in 2018, and also documenting the police brutality in Portland during the Black Lives Matter protests. Ushahidi has just been a very good way of helping activists use data to create awareness around human rights violations around the world. One, one other that's really close to my heart is good governance, looking at using the platform to hold duty bearers to account and uphold the integrity of elections and democracies around the world. Given that we were born out of a post-election crisis, we've, we, this, this is probably the one instance where we step away from, we, we, we not only develop the software itself, but then we also get actively involved in training volunteers and mobilizing them to monitor the, monitor the election. And it's really just trying to be 
not react not, not as reactive as you were before but being very proactive in ensuring that what happened in 2007 doesn't happen again and empower ordinary people to protect their votes so we've used it to monitor uh, every general election in kenya since 2008 the 2010 referendum, the 2013 general elections, the two general elections in 2017, um, and also looking forward to uh, doing the same for our upcoming uh, upcoming election. So I know that was a long-winded answer of example that, that stand out to be noteworthy, but it's just there's so many impactful examples, some of which I haven't even mentioned, that we're constantly discovering um, every day in our journey. No, yeah, I knew that was a, a tough question. <laughs> there's, so, there's literally so many. It's like even impossible to like go through all of them, as you mentioned. Yeah. So yeah. this is a great, <laughs> a great uh, um, intro to the many different things that you've done, and then yeah. many different like contexts that the platform can be used in. And that was um, another thing that had caught my eye about the uh, about the Ushahidi was yeah thinking about from an urbanist urbanism perspective there has been a lot of talk about like smart cities and how technology and the data that's collected can be can be used for decision making and planning like for urban areas to make it a lot easier and like you know because it allows people uh, the, the public to like to provide input to interact more with these like different processes as they as they come about and so um, yeah I thought that was what I thought was really interesting about Ushahidi is that like you mentioned before that focus on the kind of like marginalized people of the of the population and getting those voices that are usually unheard make bringing them to life because in in my mind that's kind of one of the worries with technology overall is that you can it's all these great things but there's always somebody who's kind of left in the margins and the fringes and then the technology that's supposed to help them or help all of us ends up you know only benefiting some of us unfortunately yeah exactly yeah and so my question is really about like why is crowdsourcing data important you say from like uh, a city perspective you know for both the city builders but also like the communities who access it and I guess we kind of went over the community part but let's say for like city builders yeah. yeah, there's immense value in getting to understand local context directly from those who are affected by decisions being made on a day-to-day basis. Crowdsourcing makes it easier to reach audiences at a larger scale than you would on a one-on-one basis. Like you, you'll just be able to gather so much more information than you would by trying to either do a door-to-door uh, kind of effort. Now, looking specifically at cities, for city builders, crowdsourcing is an integral part of helping them designed for the needs of the communities. It can help eliminate blind spots and assumptions about what works and what doesn't, right? Um, And then for communities, I think crowdsourcing is also a meaningful way to elevate their voices and concerns. It also serves as a very strong validation when you see others like you thinking and feeling the same way and being able to see your voice amongst all of that to then just kind of elevate it. But more importantly, I think it it can also be the key to behavioral change if those feedback loops are closed. It's extremely powerful to see Angie or Alexandra sharing a message and seeing something happen out of it to then inspire somebody else within your own network to do the same thing. And it wouldn't be something after you saying, you know, go ahead and do this. They would just see it and be inspired to then do the same. Yeah, that's interesting what you're talking about. Yeah, closing the feedback loop. So making sure that the data that's being provided is actually used in some way and not just sitting somewhere yeah. in the internet. <laughs> yeah. And so 
yeah, I mentioned before about like smart cities and and how technology is becoming mm-hmm. more and more integrated in cities and city building. And so yep. what do you think that like city builders should consider in ensuring that these like smart cities of tomorrow or today or <laughs> however they come about, don't leave anyone b- behind? It starts with designing and building with the needs of the communities at the forefront. Design with your user at, at the design with the need for your user first before anything else. What that will mean is that you need to facilitate input from communities in the process and make that an activity process, right? From the very beginning, as you're thinking about building host community forums, as you're building it, pause in between, share that back, get feedback on what works and what doesn't, and keep that going. And I know that it can be a daunting task, but it, it it's honestly the best way of making sure that whatever it is that the city builders are building will actually get used in the in the long run, as opposed to building within our own silos based on what we think as you know technology you know people who are building and then bringing it into the market and realizing that it actually doesn't work because we didn't do enough to engage with those people. Second thing would be think about the social and economic status of those that you're building for and how that affects the tools and the services that they have access to. Because then you'll have to shift your mind into how do you build and innovate around things that people already have access to? I think those would be my, my, my key points. Main one being design and build with the needs of users at the forefront, facilitate that input think about the surrounding factors and how that affects tools that they have access to and innovate around what people already know and what they already have. Innovation doesn't have to be something new and shiny. It doesn't have to be things that only serve a specific audience because more often than not, that's what happens. You'll design a solution with the needs of people in urban areas or the elite, but you forget those who don't have electricity, those who've lost their jobs, those who only have access to um, internet-enabled phones, and forget those who might also not understand this new world that we're living in and all the technological advances. And so what kind of policies or yeah. partnerships do you think that like cities or like governments can provide to like organizations like yourself to like expand the reach of your work? I would say that in terms of policy, mm-hmm. ingrain the needs for community engagement and their participation in the decision-making process. More often than not, you'll find policies that have been set in place and the community participation portion is either optional or something that can or can't be done. Like it's it's not it's not made an integral part of the policy. Like there isn't anything that outrightly calls out the need for space to talk to different communities. I'm seeing more and more governments being open to this. For example, um, whether it's in Kenya or many other countries, there tend to be open calls and open community forums where you can discuss a bill that is going to affect you. We need to see more of these. It's something that's coming up, but there needs to be more. And ultimately, I think it would it calls for open-mindedness to shifting the status quo. There's a certain way that governments and cities have tend to work. And this shift can be uncomfortable, but I think it requires some level of discomfort to challenge those those structures that have been in place and call out things that don't work anymore and be open to new ways of of working around them. Yeah. So I I like that that at the end of whether it's ensuring that smart cities are 
um, more equitable or these partnerships that at, at the core of everything is people. And I think that's the most important yep. thing that I'm gathering from you and that in general is, is kind of a good practice to follow in terms of designing these things and, and these different uh, tools, especially that it is the people, it is the communities that are really benefiting from this information. So catering it to them is the best way to go. It really is. And so my next question is, what's next for Ushahidi? You do so many different things already, but yeah, what, what's in store? <laughs> so right now, um, I think the, the, the biggest thing that we're dealing with now is, of course, we, Mackenzie Scott and Dan Jewett gave a very generous gift to Ushahidi in June of 2021. And we're incredibly grateful, honored, and proud to have been included in that list of 286 impactful organizations, empowering voices the world needs to hear. Our goal is to empower communities to thrive as a result of access to data and technology. And we know that we have more work to do on making improvements to our platform to serve the needs of our users better. For example, we want to add new data sources. We want to improve accessibility for persons with disabilities, expand our language reach, and also improve digital and data security on our tools. Um, the second thing that we also want to focus on is helping our users create meaningful impact by expanding the scope of our support from just providing the tools and training to figuring out what else our deployers need, whether it's access to um, small amounts of funding or access to wider networks. And third, sustaining Ushahidi's work for many more years to come. The toughest nut that we have to crack is working on a business model that will augment and not distract us from our core mission and work and enable us continue making our platform accessible to those who need it. And I think that this gift from Mackenzie and Dan, this generous unrestricted gift is something that will help us invest in making that happen and so much more. So right now we're very much in the space of really taking a step back and reflecting on where we've come from, where we want to go and just making sure that that strategy is very solid along those three key areas. And so you, well, first of all, congratulations on, <laughs> on, on being nominated and being ranked on this list. That's really great. Yeah. And the other thing is uh, you are a nonprofit and yeah, you do so much work, yes. so much impact. Um, so how can people like support that, the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, uh, one of the biggest ones, we we welcome partnerships in whatever shape or form those look like, whether it's uh, funding partnerships or implementation projects with each other. Feel free to reach out to us um, on our website. Um, we do have a contact page and we're always happy to, to engage on those. Um, we also support groups that might be looking to do any research based, based on our project. So you can get in touch with us and we'll see how best to support. For those who are looking to contribute directly to the platform or to our work. We have a public asynchronous chat room for members of our community on Gitter or Slack. And we also host online meetups from time to time. So stay tuned to our social media channels and blogs for upcoming announcements. But overall, just feel free to get in touch. We're also open to hearing any, you know, new ways um, of, of, of working together if they exist. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it um, in terms of questions. So okay. uh, thank you so much for taking this time to discuss all these wonderful things that you're, you've been working on. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me as well. Um, I'm hoping that this was useful. In case anyone wants to reach out or ask any questions, um, you, my email is Angela at Ushahidi.com. I'd be happy to, happy to help wherever I can. Thanks for listening to the episode. 
To learn more about Angela and Ushahidi, please visit www.ushahidi.com. This episode's editing and music production was done by Imani Lambropoulos. And the episode direction, research, and graphic design was done by yours truly. To learn more about today's guest and find this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrove.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way. Until next time.